0: Then wear the gold hat, if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her, too. Till she cry lover. Gold-headed, high-bouncing lover. I must have you. Parallel Lives is your recondite role-playing resource. Exploring systems outside the dungeon and off the beaten pathfinder. This episode is about 50 minutes long.
1: Hey, I'm your host, Wednesday Sophia. Today I'm joined by Hugh and Carrie. Sup? And we are looking at... Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go.
2: Seriously, we should probably do an episode. That's going to oh. be out
1: of date by the time this podcast gets released. Although <laughs> we could do an episode of Pokemon Go, it'll no longer be topical.
2: I mean, it's still an interesting role play experience. Oh, it is. We should. Pokemon we should. Go has only been out for like three weeks out of beta at the time of this recording. Yeah. We had to delay actually starting the recording by about five minutes because there was there's a lure nearby and we were just catching Pokemons.
3: Yeah. We were no. Pokemon. I was Shannon catching I, hours.
2: Shannon and I. We're catching. Our, our
1: north american no. office is full of pokemon today so <laughs>
2: it's an infestation we gotta we gotta put some balls around those yeah servers. we gotta we
1: gotta ball them up <clears throat> i'm
3: gonna
1: delete that it's cool <laughs> today we're looking at gargle sound <laughs> augmented reality game from you brush your teeth from neil sishiraga i think
2: he's married to ming doyle Hmm. weird. She and I have an important thing in common, which is a fierce Dr. Strange boner
1: mm, Yes. And welcome to our Dr. Strange cast, <laughs> side-to-side magic times
2: Oh, why wasn't Dr. Strange the host of our party, though? Uh. Today we played a game called The Death of the Gilded Age The Death
1: of the Gilded Age This game came out in 2014, it was published by NDP Design, and it's up by Dee Pauletta Death of the Gilded Age is a three-page micro game and uh, could be roughly summed up as Party Simulator 2K16, or rather, 191890,
2: 1920, Great Gatsby. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's sort of a, a Great Gatsby-oid... Um, great
3: Gatsby.
2: Yeah, Great Gatsby. This
3: well-known genre of tabletop role-playing <laughs> yeah. is the Great Gatsby Simulator. Yeah. <laughs> You'll find this game is no different than many of the others, including, oh my god, the eyes are watching me. Yeah. What do those eyes mean anyway? And who is Gatsby? Is Isn't he a- Jesus? He Greats and Gatsbys, a role-playing adventure.
2: Isn't there a green light? The green light across the lake I, or yeah. something? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I... I've never read... Have Red you read Gate Gatsby? Okay. Yeah, Billboard
3: Red. in the Liminal Space and...
2: is probably cooler than F. Scott anyway. Uh, our, yeah. our resident
3: Gatsbert is huge. Today. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> I read this book once in high school. Like, everyone is supposed to, unlike you, uncultured heathens. I read Crime and Punishment. What do you what want you from Crime me? I read Crime and Punishment 2. Not also. I read Crime and Punishment 2. The secret. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, How was yeah. that? It's pretty crimey. Uh, it's a lot of punishment. Uh, uh, this it's time, like, it, it really might a comes back. <laughs> uh,
2: Ironic Nihilism. The Brothers Karamazov is better anyway. I, I'm lying. I haven't read the Brothers The Brothers <laughs> Karamazov is great though.
1: Welcome to the book cast <laughs> Parallel about- Pros. Welcome to English class. <laughs> Hello. We will be Konichiwa. Konnichiwa. Wait. This
2: is an interesting game because it is played with a deck of cards. Yeah.
1: This is a game that is played with a deck of cards, but not a custom deck of cards like uh, Neon Sanctum or the like. Rather, you just get a full deck of like playing cards, minus the Jokers. And as you go through your Party simulation, the different suits that you play. We'll tell you what kind of party you're having. This
2: is also a delightful game because it is a game that is meant to be played while you are having a party. You play it casually over dinner with music playing. And I actually found those elements significantly enhanced my play experience. I don't know how you guys felt, but I liked starting the party while eating the lovely chili that Wednesday had prepared. I liked having the soundtrack to the game. There were moments where, for me, what was happening emotionally in the game synced up with the soundtrack quite well. And I found those moments to be like particularly interesting and effective.
3: I think the little detail of add a soundtrack gives you actually an opportunity to possibly introduce an element that does unexpectedly large amounts of heavy lifting, either thematically or setting-wise.
1: Um, Hugh pointed out to me partway through the game that I hadn't put on any music at the very beginning. Yeah, or the, or at the very beginning. So I, I don't want music good, and it definitely added to it. I think the party atmosphere is. Real fun for the game. And I also like a game that is meant to just be like playing casually kind of slowly while you're just enjoying a meal together. That seems nice.
2: For the record, the soundtrack slightly fell to me to suggest all of a sudden I miss everyone by Explosions in the Sky, which I thought worked because it was sort of slow, lyricless, swelling guitar sounds.
3: I was contemplating loud and probably obnoxious electro swing. That might have been directly in the vibe of the game, depending on...
2: It could have been fun to just listen to like some Caravan Palace. Yeah, That's that absolutely was... true. I didn't even think about that. What
1: if we did a, uh, a ribbon drive on this and we just had like a themed playlist that was all about butts? Because I remember <laughs> that being discussed during our ribbon drive. <laughs> oh,
2: what's that song about butts? This <laughs> baby got back, you guys. It's baby got the back. Okay. So this game has four stages. The first is basically a prologue. The fourth is basically an epilogue. So most of your play actually takes place in part three. Part one, basically, you answer four questions. Where is the party? When is the party? Who is your host? What is your host's reputation? And the suit of the card defines the answer to that question. Yeah.
1: So this first part, you're just flipping cards off the top of a deck, really.
3: And then it is left to the players to Take the answer that the card has given them, elaborate on it, yeah, and, really and, let yes and build it. your world. Yeah.
1: So, for example, the first card we flipped over was a club, and that meant that our party was taking place at a prestigious dance hall in trendy downtown.
2: Which I actually ended up forgetting. Something that was much more important to our game was that our party took place at the break of day as the sun rose. So this is a bit of a game about the party, and it's also a game about the host and like how the host manages the party and what happens to the host ultimately, not entirely as a result of the party, but what is the fate of this person for whom this party has been an important episode in their life?
3: Like I said, great Gatsby simulator. And obviously, in order to have a strong narrative in which you feel like the epilogue or conclusion is related to the rest of the game, that result for the host should tie into something about how the party went, or the themes you've been working with, or the plot lines you've been building, or something like that. Though the structure of the game doesn't explicitly require it.
2: Once you know sort of about your party, you start the party, so everybody has sort of a detail about the beginning of the party. And you set aside three cards that are going to be wrenches. Wrenches are things that make the party go considerably less smoothly than the host would like. And wrenches are... Just as with the answers to our questions, the nature of the wrenches is also determined by the suit of the card. So there are sex wrenches, fame wrenches, wealth wrenches, and reputation wrenches.
3: This game, it may become clear as we explain it, is, is truly a collaborative storytelling game. No one plays a specific character. We all take turns adding details to a scene or narrative. There is a central character of the story who is the host. Uh, His name is Gatsby. (laughs) Mr. Rogers. Uh,
2: Yeah. How? Why? Why? Why did it happen that you guys were like, Carrie, it's Mr. Rogers? Because he was a philanthropist, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the host
1: was not Mr. Rogers, but it could have been. Could
2: absolutely have been. been. Should have been.
3: Other characters are added to the narrative when face cards are played in the party phase of the game.
2: Yeah, so one of our three wrenches was a diamond face card. So he was he was a wealthy person who was fucking the party up. The part of the game where most of the play takes place is the party itself. And the party basically has three rounds and each round is a wrench. Everybody plays a card from their hand... Each round, you you could... So you've
3: got a socket wrench, and then a
2: spanner, and then a A hex wrench.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Sex wrenches are often overlooked, but really essential. Yeah,
2: very important. Ikea sells them. Pick one up. You have a hand of five cards, and there are three rounds, so you could choose not to play if you wish to, if you had no ideas or whatever, but there's absolutely no reason not to play cards. And cards are sort of important details of the party. They're important people who are wanting in or out. There are things about the party that enrich it, that make it interesting. And then once everybody's played a card, the highest card is the suit that resolves the wrench.
3: There's not much formal structure to this other than the association of each suit with a kind of detail to the party, which makes for a Loose, lightweight, and generally fairly freeform game. The downside to that is, like all simple storytelling games, it rests almost entirely on your ability to pick a compelling and interesting detail to add to the scene that anyone cares about. One thing we haven't mentioned so far is the actual presentation of all this.
0: And I think it's
1: notable because I've said that this is a three-page game, which is true. But these three pages in addition to explaining the rules are also playmats and they're really lovely in their design they're very colorful they have very um stylized places where you put all the cards and keep track of things it's our nouveau yeah it's our nouveau the design can be a little bit strange because parts of the text are orientated one way and then other parts are orientated another way presumably so people sitting around a table can all read something but it makes it a little bit hard when you're just sitting down trying to read these rules
2: Yeah, page two in particular has both the wrenches explanation and the how does the party work explanation on it, and each of those sections is oriented a different way. So once you've read the problems, you have to flip it upside down to read part three.
3: A page zero containing black and white text of all the game rules in just an outline format would be a great addition.
2: Yeah, having said that, I do think that this game is, like, relatively simple and relatively easy. We had a couple of points of confusion. Like, there's a rule in Part 2 where at the start of the party, everybody gives a detail about, like, well, how does the party begin? And we were like, do you play cards or don't you play cards? And ultimately, we were like, I don't think we play cards.
3: I would say, though, that unlike a couple of other lightweight storytelling games like this, once we read the rules a couple times to clarify, I think it was obvious how to play and that we were playing correctly. I'd contrast this to, like, The Murder of Mr. Crow and some others where our main takeaway was, man, I really wanted a detailed play-by-play example of what play of this game is supposed to look like. Didn't feel like this needed that.
1: With feather games, I know that often our comment has been, I wish there was like an additional page rules just talking about stuff. And like this one, I don't think really needed that. Like you were talking about a page zero, like, you know, maybe, but there's nothing here that is missing or that I find really confusing or anything. It all seems to flow and make sense once we got into it, which is really admirable for such a small space.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Especially because like page one is mostly taken up with being a play map and Talking about, oh, what do all the suits mean for this person's reputation? Like, there are almost no rules on page one. And even so, this game manages to be a pretty easy, pretty understandable rule set in, like, two pages. With page one almost entirely taken up by, like, being good looking and talking about how the details work.
3: My biggest mechanical criticism of this game, and and maybe it's not fair to make mechanical criticisms of storytelling games, but... mechanics exist whether or not you want them to exist and so they should be right is that the cards people play are a choice you make the ending depends on the cards that are played in the party round the relationship between those and why it should be that playing a certain thing in the party round is causally linked to the fate of the host in the way that it is based on the association of suits and and colors doesn't make sense to me but because all of that information is available and that there's no random element once the cards are dealt to the players in the party round, you know what cards you have in your hand, you know what cards you get to play adds an odd potential dynamic of trying to choose the outcome you want by what card you play in the party
2: just to be clear um, as I mentioned, wrenches, are resolved by the highest card played during the round for that wrench. that card then goes on to be one of the things that that determines the fate of the host so if you want to you can be like well i really don't want the fates host to be the the one that involves three spades being down there so even though i have a high spade i'm just not going to play it because there are already two spades or because i just don't want to risk that or whatever so there is a potential of like strategic element if you're really rooting for an ending but I do think that the causal linkage is strange and I think that the addition of that even strategic element is a little weird too especially in a collaborative storytelling game.
1: The way in which the different suits of cards that have resolved wrenches goes on to then determine the fate of the host
2: is one that, in theory
1: I like. I sort of enjoy the idea of like ah here are things that have happened at the party and you know we will naturally determine your ending but it didn't quite work at least for me or for us when we were doing it and we we managed to make it work but like we made up an ending for it but it felt like oh is that how it would go i, I guess because ours was resolved mostly by sex and wealth and then the ending was
2: he retreats from society to enjoy his material gains. are they worth it
1: and uh, that didn't to me, seemed to at least initially flow meaningfully from the st- thing, story that we had made.
2: I'll also note that most of the endings, it would be a little bit difficult to make them either happy or even bittersweet, and that can be a little bit of a challenge, especially because by the end of this game, I was slightly attached to the character, and I was like, "Oh, I don't want things good to go poorly for him."
3: Great Gatsby Simulator.
2: <laughs> Look, I've never read Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby I don't know what to expect. Great.
3: Gatsby simulator. Look,
2: I just want things to go well for satirists.
3: Great Gatsby simulator. Is it more of a Gats-like or gats light uh, I, I think it's a Gats-like. Okay. But actually, a further problem is that making reasonable assumptions about human behavior, that people will play high cards if they have them, because humans just sort of naturally like the high cards, particularly because... Playing that high card gives you a feeling of agency in the party round. Two of the six potential endings are significantly more likely than the others.
2: Namely the ones that are just mixed suit yeah. rather than all one suit.
3: Yeah, the six endings, four of them are all three rounds were ended by a heart, a spade, a, a club, a diamond. And then there is a at least two red cards and at least two black cards. Those two, the mixed part diamond, spade... Club are just gonna come up more. If you just let groups of people play this game, I think it's fair to say that those endings will come up probably half the time.
1: It's pretty exciting to play the higher cost cards too, because the higher ones are face cards, and when you play face cards, you get to introduce a new character. Right which is cool and, you know, adds a certain kind of flair to the scene that you don't get to do if you play, like, a two.
2: (laughs) Our game would have been so much less interesting without the characters introduced by the face cards.
3: I, at least, when reading the rules of a game like this, take as an implicit corollary to face cards introduce characters that you should not introduce characters when you play a non-face card. Yeah, I think that's that's And if that's the case, and if you play that way, then you really are going to get everybody playing out all the face cards they get. And that's going to have biased the eventual outcomes. I don't know if that was intended. I don't have a a real sense of the underlying philosophy of the game to the extent that I would speculate about whether the endings are supposed to be different or all equivalent to each other. But the mechanics of that, with some reasonable assumptions about human behavior, suggest that those two endings are going to come up more.
2: Well, I will note the two endings in question are he retreats from society to enjoy his material gains. Are they worth it? And he sacrifices happiness for legacy. How is he remembered in a generation? And both of those are more interesting, more like capable of being bittersweet, more capable of being a semi-happy ending for the character than two of the three three three-of-a-kind endings.
3: They so, feel reasonably open-ended.
2: Yeah, like, the other endings are, he throws it all away for love. Is it is it worth it? And the answer could totally be, yeah, it's totally worth it. This is great. <laughs> his fame is lost. What does he do as a desperate final act? That seems hard to be good. And he finds, he finds no happiness in wealth. How does he squander it? That seems hard to be good. And his reputation is destroyed. How does he live up to his worst qualities? Ha, ah, that seems hard to be good. <laughs> it does seem to me that it is slanted such that, like, Those are the more interesting, those are the happier, those are the less harrowing endings, and they are the likelier endings. And so yeah, Hugh, I I wouldn't be surprised if that was noted and deliberate.
3: I could believe that. I suppose that requires that there be a single theme that's dominating your game, uh, and those endings are matched to those themes, so that seems reasonably fitting. Yeah. I still think it's a lot.
2: I, I agree that it's a little lot. You mentioned that this game, like a lot of the storytelling games we have, has an ending that feels a little bit overdetermined, like Fiasco, like Dulse, like a lot of the storytelling games we have, and I, I do not disagree.
3: My kingdom for a storytelling game that connects the main body of play to its resolution in a way that feels natural and satisfying and...
2: Yeah, and I think that it's probably really hard for storytelling games to manage that because they really do want you to, like, as a storytelling game designer, I can imagine being like, all right, I want this to have an ending that is an ending and can be satisfying. So I have to, like, force a satisfying ending on my players. And yeah, that just seems like a really challenging piece of design.
3: I'll still stand by The Murder of Mr. Crow as actually accomplishing that a little bit better than many other comparable-length storytelling games by exploiting the fact that it has a specific conceit in which how the story that you're watching, telling, participating in is resolved, is, is formulaic and known. Yeah, the Murder but... of Christmas, Mr. Crow is a parlor scene of a mystery novel or movie and ends with the full details of the mystery of the crime and who committed it and so on being revealed in elaborate monologue on the part of someone.
2: Yeah, Mr. Crow also has the strong benefit, I think, of having players vote, which means that, like, whatever players felt was strongest thematically, they'll probably choose. And Dulse had something similar to voting that I think was a lot weaker and a lot more muddled. Mm, the but... worst part of Dulse. <laughs> no, yes, I do mean the worst part of Dulse. You tried, Jason Morningstar, and I don't hold it against you, but that is the worst part of Dulse. If this game had a mechanic that was a little bit more a little bit more voting oriented that was more based on like well how is the character of the host emerged that might be better than what we have here. I think
3: I've got one. Take all the cards that were played in part 3. Take an extra card of each of the suits that was used to resolve the round shuffle those together, deal them out to all the players. Each player picks one card, shuffle those. Of those, take the first three.
2: Yeah, that makes more sense. That
3: mechanically links it to what cards were played in the story. It slightly weights it towards the factors used to resolve each wrench, gives the players a vote, and makes the ultimate outcome a little bit unknown.
2: Yeah, another thing that I think that would do is it removes the fact that high cards become more important for basically no reason in part four. So I could be like, oh man, I really think that this is a character who will throw it all away for love. So I'm gonna put a heart in there, which is something that causes part three to go smoothly without like a weird strategic element and allows me to vote on who I think this person has become.
1: As long as we're talking about homebrewing parts of this game, one thing that Carrie mentioned after we just finished playing was that this is another game where you could sort of chop it up a little bit and put it into your ongoing campaign and just have, like, one evening where instead of fighting goblins, you simulate a party. And uh, you take off the part where you have an ending and maybe you get rid of some of this part at the beginning where you talk about the circumstances of the party, because maybe the jam would make that. And then you just sort of... Have a meal and narrate a party and that sort of determines some stuff about your game. You can go back to your D&D later or whatever. And that seems like a fine time to me.
2: Yeah, I'm really into this notion of shoehorning micro games into overarching campaigns of, like, more campaign-oriented games. And I think for both of the ones that I've semi-suggested it, both this and the Murder of Mr. Crow, like, a lot of different kinds of role-playing campaign could have a murder mystery or could have a big party. So I really like how flexible
3: these feel. Dragon Age Inquisition basically has this scene as one of the pivotal story arcs in it. There's a big party that the party has to go to because you have to talk to people about stuff because Dragon Age, that's a high fantasy computer role-playing game that very much mimics the structure of a traditional tabletop role-playing game campaign and is a case in point for how you could insert a narratively important large party into an ongoing story.
2: I think that this is also a game that makes sort of simulating and managing a simulation of politics a little bit easier. I don't know how much easier it makes it, but like, for example, if you wanted to, you could be like, all right, my deck is only face cards. I know who all of these face cards are, you know, so this person appears at this point, this person appears at this point, and that might allow you to juggle characters, juggle their appearances, juggle their motivations, juggle their political meanings in a way that is a little bit more natural than like, how you would be able to do it as a GM, just sitting down and being like, okay, okay, I have all these people at this party. All right, I have to make them all make an appearance.
3: Okay. This is is a bit of a digression to a more general question about games like this that I'd I'd like to see what people have to say about. But how do we feel about this kind of tarot-reading style of storytelling game? Deal a card or do a random thing and then interpret it to make sense of the narrative? Because that's, I mean, if I had to point out a single mechanic, this is is a game where that is the single mechanic. I'm
1: generally positive. I'm trying to remember if we played a game that has done this exact mechanic before, or only similar things. We did play The Quiet Year, which had a couple of very specific options that would come up depending on which card you drew, and that felt a little bit more difficult to me just because you were kind of pigeonholed and we will have to be like oh what did they find in the desert whereas this lets you more or less come up with anything as long as it's party flavored oh, party flavored that's the new kind of chip i should make
2: i pretty much love this kind of thing i have used on more than one occasion while trying to write stories while trying to come up with like the direction for a campaign just like whipped out a tarot deck and been like all right what's going on Oh, it's the, you know, the seven of swords and it's upside down. All right, what the fuck does that mean? Oh, okay, I can use this. I can use this as a prompt. And the fact that these are, like, let me just read you one of the descriptions. Like, so here's here's the description for reputation. So anytime a club comes up, it's this. Good name cast into doubt. Threats and promises. Revelations from the past. So that's a fairly directed but also open-ended prompt. Very similar to the kind of thing that you get, like, with an actual tarot card. So, like... It's not so open-ended that you're like, oh my god, I'm going to die. How do I, what's an idea? And it's not so restrictive that you're like, okay, um, this person has a dark secret. A
3: secret you fit under a hat.
2: So I really, really like this kind of thing where it's like, look, it's just helpful enough, I feel.
3: Okay. There's an alternative version of this where rather than giving us all four of those descriptors lumped together and stuck with one suit attached... That's broken out into, like, two to five clubs, this, where we have an entire table. And actually, some Jason Morningstar games kind of feel like say yeah, it sounds nice. like a Jason morning started <laughs> yeah
2: yeah and i mean like I, I i wonder how this game would go if you've literally just played it with a tarot deck and we're like all right everything that this says about what this what any of these things mean is off the table we're using tarot cards and we're using the card reads
1: i really enjoyed the open ended nature of this but, i mean the, the way that this game was so laid back i guess at least the way it felt to me very um very casual and easy i enjoyed that you could sort of just go with whatever you want based off of the fairly open-ended signifiers for each of the suits. You could have it be much more specific, and that might be interesting in giving you... in building much
0: more intricate stories, I guess. Yeah.
1: But at the same time, with those, you often run into the risk of being like, well, this card doesn't fit at all. You have something that um,
3: collapses under its own weight.
1: Yeah. You're like, where are with all of these details going? Nowhere? Okay.
3: Yeah,
2: and I, I, think, I think that's definitely true. Making sure that details fit together, making sure that scenes fit together at the end of a storytelling game, making sure that every scene has as much a meaning to the resolution of the story as you can manage is definitely a challenge that I've noticed with storytelling games, sort of as a form. And yeah, that's going to be a lot more difficult when you have a lot more
3: Baroque system. Hmm. I want a storytelling game... With an elegant and, and well defined system that allows you to, on some occasions, discard a, a drawn card or reveal detail when it seems irrelevant to your story. I'm almost tempted to house rule that as a, you can do this three times per game. Yes,
2: that's actually exactly... For every
3: storytelling game (laughs) you're ever playing, as long as there's some graceful way to skip it and move on.
2: No, that's actually literally and precisely what I was thinking, is like, look, you get three hard passes per game for the whole table, use them wisely.
1: To play devil's advocate, when I am forced to come up with something very specific... Sometimes that can be really interesting and it can lead into unexpected but exciting territory. And like being challenged or being surprised is not something that these cards will do. And if that's what you're looking for, this is not the game for that.
2: I also like to have some control of the story, at least a little bit where you go like, all right, well, you know, I've drawn the card that says like a murder has to take place, but I don't really want to be telling the kind of story where a murder takes place. Mm. Like I actually just don't. And you could really force yourself to be like, all right, well, maybe it's a figurative murder. There is a murder of ravens. Yeah, or exactly. <laughs> but I think there are times and places where instead just being like, her pass, next card, oh, there's a dark lady arrives. And you're like, okay, got it, dark lady, let's go.
3: That's a problem that arises more in games where there's a lot more breadth of genre and breadth of stories that you can tell. And it's easier to avoid when your game is narrow in scope already. If you're making a game that all the the elements that you might be prompted with are directly thematically related to a, a specific kind of story, then it gets easier. Though, come to think of it, Juggernaut, a game that has a very specific genre and very specific kind of story it's trying to tell, still suffers from this problem a little bit.
2: But a game that I think does not particularly suffer that problem is The Death of the Gilded Age. I really do think that The Death of the Gilded Age is pretty thematically tight. Like, you're having an incredibly fancy party in some setting that can be called The Death of a Gilded Age. Spoilers, we went with something that wasn't quite on book, but I think in this case it worked out great. And the kind of things that are going to come up are pretty restrained. And not in a bad way.
3: I think this is the kind of thing that is well defined but not specific.
2: Sure. That makes sense.
3: It has clear bounds. It must be an age, it must be dying, and it must be gilded. But this could be sort of apocalyptic space opera science fiction. It could be oh, we could have done elves. Could have been elves? Could have <laughs> been want the to the do death elves. of the second age.
1: No, <laughs> <What? laughs> right, whenever whenever any game is like, let's do like medieval fantasy, everyone's like, ah, oh, do cyberpunk future. Well, okay. Okay. But like,
2: but, but I think that is interesting about elves is that elves are rarely the focus. The focus is almost always humans. So we, we don't, we don't often get like, look, this is the final party of the elven nation. It's always like, oh, the final party of the elven nation is happening over there. But right here, we're having like some sort of early council of the commission of men or whatever. Okay. And I'm like, nah, 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 what about that party? <laughs>
1: next game will do elves. Little do you know. Next game is worldwide wrestling.
2: <laughs> I really want to care about wrestling, so I'm excited. It's by the same author. Oh really?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an apocalypse world hack by the same person.
3: It's an apocalypse world hack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't scripted. The
2: good reaction. I'm i High
1: I don't think they have sex moves, if that's what you're asking, but... I'm
2: not asking that, although I guess they probably have... Spe- oh my god, why isn't it Apocalypse World hack?
3: <laughs> well, it's narrative-based. Oh, this is fine. I um, think because making Apocalypse World Hacks was really trendy in, like, 2013. Right.
2: <laughs> Do we want to talk about the story we told? I'm interested in the story we told partially because... I think that this might have been a lot because we did have music, but I, I found this to be fairly emotionally satisfying story to tell lightly and loosely. Not quite over dinner, but you know, cause we ate once really upon fast. a Gatsby. Once upon a Gatsby. I guess it's, even if we don't get into the depths of the story, I think it's relevant to say that for me, this game was able to produce a story that I enjoyed and a story that I found satisfying, even if the ending was a little bit like, oh, um, how does this end?
3: We came up with about three endings and sort yeah. of, I kind think of hand-waved It's one. a real hyper-time situation. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think we chose one. As long as you got it, we do have, this. like, a save yeah.
1: point, though, right before the last decision.
2: Oh, shit, I forgot your... Oh, I forgot your dumb away game. <laughs> Fuck, I'm sorry. It's... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I recently was hired at FAKU, which is a hentai distributor, so I just have access to stuff now. Um, so, like... Tootling around our office, we have numerous hard copies of My Girlfriend is the President. And Wednesday was like, wait, hey, wait, can I have a copy of
1: My Girlfriend? I did not say that. Carrie came up to me and she's like, do you want a copy of My Girlfriend (laughs) is the President? Okay, that's not quite what happened.
2: I I was like, Wednesday, do you want a copy of Sayana Uta? And she was like no? No. Absolutely not?
1: No, keep that and I away from like, me. was like,
2: what about my girlfriend who's a president? And she was like, yeah, okay.
1: I want to learn
3: about sociopolitics.
2: <laughs> that you're gonna, you're gonna learn a thing.
3: On the subject of politics, um, the plot of our specific death of the Gilded Age had something to do with the celebrations of a up-and-coming politician, public intellectual, satirical writer and essayist... And general man about town in fictional, maybe sort of Japan or something.
2: Yeah, whatever. Or maybe Britain. I think that the consensus was, and I don't know shit about this because I've never seen this film, but the consensus was like, wherever Howl's Moving Castle takes place, that's where our game takes place, approximately.
3: Except maybe like 20 years later.
2: Yeah, sure. I don't know. Probably like 20 years later. I've never seen Howl's Moving Castle. Cicadas were important. We had to eat cicadas. It ended
1: up being what seems to me like
2: vaguely uh, fictional European? Yeah, I think approximately. Fictional, pretty much European.
1: Could have been Japan, I guess. It didn't really come up. I don't know. There was a queen.
2: queen. Cicadas were important.
3: Yeah. We talked about modernity. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we talked
2: a little bit about modernity. I don't know. I recently read Cushiel's Dart, so I had that in the back of my head the whole time. People
3: fought
1: with pieces of an ice sculpture that had drugs inside of it? Yeah. There was some decadence. There was
2: decadence. there was some decadence. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, decadence. Ancient Rome, that's a setting for this.
2: Oh, that's a sweet setting. Okay, can we talk for a second about how oh, many we should fucking... Talk all sometimes. Oh, go on. All
3: sometime.
2: <laughs> can we talk for a second about how many sweet settings there are for this game? Basically
3: everything, everything is a sweet setting for this yeah. game. No,
2: there are so many sweet settings the fall of rome is a sweet fucking setting the end of elves is a pretty sweet setting what if
1: what if lex Luthor was throwing this party
2: (gasps) oh that would be a sweet (laughs) setting god that would be sweet uh, and at the what's end, you could have
3: falling in in the DC universe. I don't know Lex
2: You could have Superman crash it. <laughs> <laughs> like that could be the end. Is Superman crashes, and you can be like, okay, oh shit, Superman's here. I was sort of looking of
3: to an ending to to our game where like the secret police came in and, and uh, like, uh, rounded everybody up, but
2: yeah, there really um, isn't an ending that is that. His reputation could be destroyed, but how does he live up to his worst qualities doesn't really jibe totally. He could sacrifice his happiness for legacy. Oh man, he could betray them all to the secret police. Yeah.
3: Rough. (laughs)
2: Whatever. The end of a Gilded Age, the party at the end of a Gilded Age, is a hella rad setting.
3: If you're not working intrigue of some kind into your Gilded Age party, you're doing it wrong. Or you're going for, like, a really high-concept, like, totally philosophical and sort of literary kind of game. But that's nowhere near as cool as, like, Intrigue, if you ask me.
2: No, I find Intrigue to be an extremely fun, extremely appealing element of role-playing games that is difficult, A, to do, and B, to get many people excited about, partially because it's hard to do. And I definitely like how easy this makes it and how good it feels.
3: I think that works in part because it's a strictly collaborative game. Mm-hmm. Um, It's intrigue or conspiracy or things like that are very hard to do in conflict-focused role-playing games because you either need some kind of really elaborate game system for them or it's really just a story you're walking the players through by the nose because they're not really those people and they can't really conspire. It it gets clumsy and, and heavily mechanical or something.
2: Yeah, that's one of the ways that I think that this game potentially has excellent application in a bigger role playing setting is that like, you're the GM and you're playing this game and your characters are also at the party. So you get to basically have the death of the Gilded Age session that you're playing is the backdrop for the session of whatever role playing game you're also playing, which probably allows things to go Much more smoothly and much more easily for your players who are trying to navigate this intrigue because you have a pretty well fleshed out backdrop for them to live inside as opposed to just being like, okay, you're at a party and everybody important is there. You're going to eat cicadas at noon.
3: Would you do it live or would you do it offline in advance? Because I think you could really do either.
2: I think you could really do either. I would myself... Probably either do it or do something very similar to it in in advance and then try to tailor that in the moment to the playgroup. I think it's probably most fun if you do it live, but I don't know if I personally would have the confidence to do it live.
3: So, who is this for? Who, who is, is this not for? I he can is certainly, you that.
2: if you like <laughs> intrigue, if you like... Games that involve intrigue, I think this is for you. I think this is a particularly good storytelling game. So if you've been really hankering for a good storytelling game, this is one that I would recommend.
1: If you played Ribbon Drive and you enjoyed Ribbon Drive, I think this might be one that you might get a similar feel out of. You might also enjoy. Uh, So for fans
3: of Ribbon Drive, which I love, by the way, uh, you might also like this. I have a setting. It's Regency, Romance, Death of the Gilded Age. Go really heavy on the dramatic and romantic elements. That's it works so perfectly. Oh, good! That's so, so good! good. <laughs> who is this game for? Well, if you've ever wanted to play a tabletop role-playing game with your high school English teacher, <laughs> uh, this would probably be my go-to.
2: I don't know how well this game would reach people who are not already role-players. I think probably better than many, many storytelling games, because there is much more guidance, but worse than The Murder of Mr. Crow. Yeah, I think that in terms of, like, I want to play something with my family because it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or, you know, whatever. This is something that you should consider, but I still think that The Murder of Mr. Crow is better.
3: I think this game benefits from having a group of players who are interested in picking some kind of interesting setting and playing this game in it. Or, or picking a particular kind of decadence and particular kind of gilded age and set a story in that i'm not sure i mean unless you're just a really really into late 19th early 20th century history that anyone has it in them to play just a straight this is gilded age america game of this and care very much about what's going on but there are a lot of fictional contexts that this game structure can be transposed onto that are really satisfying
2: oh my god imperial japan though Mm. oh shit son Oh, except maybe like not Imperial Japan, no. maybe Imperial China, like Japan-occupied China. Holy
1: shit. Wow, I mean, you can that all... game
2: would be really dark.
1: Lake Tokugawa, if... Japan. What, oh. if, what if instead... Dinosaurs. Dinosaur party before uh, the I meteor. Think you <laughs> might argue
3: that the entire construction of the dinosaur is itself decadent. Nature can't product... be decadent. Nature
2: can't be decadent.
3: <laughs> and its role in Western imagination mm. is is a product of the capitalist desire for rare or hard to obtain things. The price of fossils and the capitalist violence associated with fossils
2: Okay, Dino Party, I see what you're saying. If I
3: talk to you about the Flintstones comic, by the way? It's
1: great.
2: No, and what?
1: It's about war and death and art. Surprising? It's weird.
3: Anyways. Is
2: there anybody else in particular who this game is for?
3: Um, I think it's for anyone who likes storytelling games. I think it's a a fine storytelling game. And really, I would recommend it. It's hard not to
2: recommend? Yeah, I think it's really hard not to recommend this game for people who like storytelling games.
1: It's like, if you had an evening... Where you're like, oh, maybe I could have friends over and we'd have a nice dinner and i put on some music. Hey, you could just do this also. And it's a real nice evening. It's and unlike
2: time. Ribbon Drive, it doesn't require any advanced prep.
1: Yeah, no, exactly.
2: Like, have a deck of cards that exists.
3: I'd also recommend it to anyone who's interested in taking a storytelling game and then maybe building a little more game out of it. Because as much as I like this game... I'm really intrigued by the games that you could make this game into Yes, by adding a couple of rules, fixing a couple of things, coming up with your own set of complications or house rules for how it gets used. I think while it's got a lot of potential from a really game standpoint, there's more you could do with this.
2: I think that there are ways in which you could use it as a world building game or a partial world building game where I already have an idea for the world, but like, how does that world really function? Oh, I don't know. Let's play a game of the death of the Gilded Age in it. Probably a sex version of this game is a little bit more like character centric and possibly more romance centric. Although I don't know how you get anybody to mean- know. <laughs> there are certainly sexier versions that you could play very easily. like. What if your death of the Gilded Age party is just at an orgy, bam? I think our
3: didn't our party already have an orgy? No, it was implied that orgies had happened previously. Yeah. Yeah. Or do you mean in the real party?
2: In the party that the game is about. Okay. Turning
3: your tabletop role playing game into a tabletop sex (laughs) role playing game simply by having an orgy (laughs) beforehand does not count. Our
2: host insinuated that clergy had attended orgies that he had hosted in the past. Or, like, that was an idea that we had that I don't know... I don't know if that became canon Wednesday.
1: Yeah, I guess that's fair. I'm sorry. I think it was true. I was focusing on the Apocrypha.
2: This game is not for you if you are zero percent interested in intrigue. Just not at all.
1: So if you're the kind of person who only wants to play Golden Sky stories, I guess. It's just one where you're like playing animal campaigns and you just like make people have a good time.
2: <laughs> that sounds adorable. Oh, isn't that by the same person who did made RPG? Yeah, I think so that's probably yeah, that. Oh true. yeah. yeah.
1: That's right.
2: No, I mean if you're just like intrigue doesn't interest me, I find intrigue boring, I find intrigue uninteresting, and much more interested in like conflict that involves combat. I'm much more interested in conflict that involves problem solving. I do not care for intrigue.
1: Once again, this is not a game that's going to challenge you, probably. This is a game that is going to flow mostly pretty easily. And the most challenging is how you are like, I need to think of a thing. But it's not like I need to think of a very specific thing where I'm being stretched or pushed or something.
2: Even and maybe it's just that like I feel like I'm getting better at this, I don't know. But like in most storytelling games I have at least one moment where I'm like, mmm shoot. What do I say at this juncture? And I had one of those in this game and only one
3: to state the obvious it's probably not for someone who's really invested in personal success Mm, either mm -hmm. for them as a player or for their character it's not for someone who can't escape from the notion of having to play a specific character in a tabletop game and it's probably not for someone who can't live without combat
2: yeah, I mean that's that's I think our general yeah, th- that combat that thing game. is like look it's a it's a storytelling game, combat is not happening. I
3: would find it hard to work like lots of like really dramatically violent events into this yes, game. Yes, I agree Almost with that. Almost by its premise, those things happen outside the narrative scope that you're presented with.
2: Again, I found the story that we told to be like pretty emotionally satisfying. But I also think that it was, you know, it was it was very loose in a lot of ways. None of our characters ended up having names. You know, we did not have particular dialogue. Like, we had some moments where it's like, oh, you know, he starts saying things like this or things like that. But, like, again, like, no actual dialogue, no true tightness of characters, and no particular, like, character development. And that is the kind of thing that you can get in storytelling games, but you're not going to get it here.
3: This feels like we played this game at the pace that you'd actually have to play a Jason Morningstar game in order to finish it in the amount of time that it thinks it can be played in. And I don't know if that's just us, just me, but when I try and play Jason Morningstar games at the level of depth that they seem to ask for, I find that they don't actually complete as fast as they seem like they should if you read the labels on the box this game does not have
2: any labels which kind of terrified me but then i was looking at the rules and i was like i don't think this game is going to take that long and it indeed it took about an hour so if you were having like dinner party with multiple courses it would not be i think any problem to, to play this game and have that dinner and have them not be poorly timed for each other Death of the
3: Gilded Age like 2.0, just add a couple more wrenches and redesign the ending system to incorporate five cards rather than three. I actually thought it was a little disappointingly short. That's I would fair. have played the same game just on for another twenty or thirty
1: minutes. Yeah, and like mind you, they're so talking about what happens at the party and when you want things to matter, play cards. And we more or
3: less did it so that we could take right. turns
1: in playing cards. But we could have just chatted about the party for a while if we felt like it, I guess. And the way that this game adds more players is it will just take longer because everyone has to go around a play That's fair. Cards. So if you're playing it with, you know, a party of six people instead of four people, it'll be longer. I feel like um, four is the standard benchmark reference for how long a
3: yeah. tabletop game takes. Yeah. So. yeah.
1: No, I mean, I was just saying, like, some games will make themselves... Right, try and, you know, scale. Yeah, some games will try and scale depending on the number of players. This one won't really, but I don't think it's a big deal.
2: Yeah, especially if you're just adding smaller and smaller details. A lot of our details ended up being like of Marit size because we only got so many of them.
3: 2.0. 2.0. 2.0. No, point out at 3.0. 3.0. 2.1. That's another area where I would be tempted to add more rules into the game. There is something that you could do where where you're actually playing sort of a card game. There's more rules about who mm, plays what mm-hmm. card next. Mm-hmm, yeah, fair. Where you play things in ascending order and something about the rules of how you play cards in ascending order means that players have less free choice about which high card they play to end a given round.
2: It would be fun as well to have sequences of cards mean things. Is it Durance that has, like, certain die rolls mean, like, a fucking cataclysm occurs? Right, yeah. It's Like, I think... Triples and... Yeah, I think that could be delightful, is, like, either you have the option to create a cataclysm if you're like, well, let's just throw a cataclysm in here right now, I have the card in hand to do it, or if it's like, oh, shit, you guys, I'm sorry, because of the sequencing rules, it's a cataclysm.
3: I think we can actually go into at least one basic version of that, which is you play in a specific order someone with the two starts and that each card played must be higher than the preceding card and you rotate who starts each round
2: yeah and then you just that would be
3: enough by itself and you probably trigger extra events on like flushes
2: yeah yeah i think that could be totally fun um you
3: could do flushes you could do straights if Mm -hmm. Those are doing a very, very crude estimate. Like, those are two roughly equally unlikely things. I need to think about which was more unlikely, yeah. but... No passing. Yeah. yeah.
1: You could just open up the last chapter of Great Gatsby instead of playing the end of this game, and then just have that be your... Yeah, end.
3: just have that... And then write a million English PhD <laughs> theses about what it means, and...
2: Whether or not there was gay sex in it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh. There was gay sex in our <laughs> game, tell you why. Oh, yeah, all watch. over um, the place. I mean, not
3: all over the place. We just. Indiscreet corners of the yeah. party. There was the one boy.
2: There ended up. Our male host had, like, a male paramour, and as soon as, like, Wednesday played that card, Shannon goes, Yes! <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so, uh, that's been Parallel Lives. See so you at the same gilded place, same gilded age. I did that just
3: for the look on you's face. <laughs> Ow! The Little Death of the Gilded Age.
1: For uh, <laughs> your reading along at home, we'll see you on the
3: next Gilded Page. <laughs> Wednesday, if you keep going like that, you're going to experience my Gilded rage <laughs>
2: <laughs> Okay, but we have to have The Little Death of the Gilded Age in there somewhere because that's the sex version. Yeah. That's the sex version. Oh, you're right.
1: That is the sex version?
2: Absolutely, that's the sex version. The Little Death of All the right. Gilded Age. Yeah. yeah, just put it in fucking Terrange. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to Parallel Lives. I bet you could play this game on Thanksgiving. You can find Death of the Gilded Age as part of a $3 microgame collection at ndpdesign.com. If you want to find the show online, we're at parallelurl.com, parallelpodcast at gmail.com, or the Parallel Lives Tabletop Podcast on Facebook. Review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio, and each of us will look to the sky and shed a single tear. If you'd like to find us on Twitter, the podcast is at Parallel Chat, Carrie is at Baroque Emotions, Hugh is at Ionic Blather, and I am at Wednesday Quest. This episode was produced by me, with music by Kevin McLeod. Also, the opening was just the opening quote from The Great Gatsby. Tune in next week for when we review a poster that I bought at a convention. That episode is about 20 minutes.
2: Why don't we have ghosts in this? Holy shit, why don't we have ghosts? Oh, we
1: could have had ghosts in this. Oh, direct. that would have been so
2: cool. This is a, a missed... It's okay. I think we did ghost fine. ghost opportunity,
1: as they
3: say. Having said what that, I a ghastly I think...
2: error. I, I caught my first ghastly the other day. I'm pretty oh. happy.